Hello and welcome to the Steal My Name podcast. I'm your host, Bob Barrow. June is here, and with June has come, I guess, here in Canada and abroad in some countries, a, a beginning of a laxing, I, should, I could say, of the, uh, of the serious lockdown we've had due to coronavirus. And that has meant more businesses are reopening, some public spaces are reopening, the amount of people that we're allowed to interact with in small groups is slightly expanding. And for some people, they are following the new rules very carefully. I'm back to work, and some customers that we have are being very serious and very mindful of the new protocols, and some just couldn't give a fuck. And this is happening everywhere. I'm sure everyone has seen the clips of packed beaches, packed swimming pools, packed public parks, just fucking craziness. Just because, you know, after I, I I get it, everybody's mind has been a little fried. If you've been stuck at home throughout all this, reality has started to get a little wiggly. So I can assume or at least understand why for people that haven't been directly touched by the tragedy of this whole thing, that they would feel compelled to just, oh, fuck it, I can go outside now and just rush out into public. And due to that, we've seen spikes in in numbers of confirmed cases, and I'm sure that's going to continue into the summer as people continue to ignore the, the new protocols, the new warnings. So what I thought I would do is look, try to look a little bit on the bright side. And I'm going to have another themed month because I'm just so desperately unoriginal, but also it really helps me program content. So I'm not just floundering from week to week. So for the month of June, I'm kicking off what I'd like to call They Were Warned. And what that means is I'm going to be looking at films where main characters or character groups as a whole have ignored some kind of warning, whether that's from a person or a setting or a situation. And by ignoring that warning, it's led to some kind of wonderful calamity. Uh, Wonderful us, the viewers, bad for the people in the films. So to kick off They Were Warned Month, I want to take a look at two films that basically have the same plot in which the but in which the characters ignore the warnings in very different ways, the warnings they're presented with, and how, if at all, justified they were in staying put and getting into trouble. So this week I'm going to be looking at The Evil Dead and its 2013 remake, Evil Dead. So synopsis for anyone that needs a synopsis for the evil dead but here we go so written and directed by sam raimi from 1981 five friends travel to a cabin in the woods where they unknowingly release flesh possessing demons sure that works so the evil dead series as a whole is one of the most popular franchises in horror history it's just, it's almost transcended horror and just become a popular media franchise in general. It kicked off the careers of Sam Raimi, Ted Raimi, Rob Tappert, and of course, Bruce Campbell, obviously. You could probably even throw in the Coen brothers to that list, as they were, was one of them, I don't know if it was Joel or Ethan, was an assistant editor on the first Evil Dead, and he became chummy with Raimi and co., and the way that 
Raimi and them raise money for Evil Dead was to create kind of a little test movie, which horror fans know from bootleg circles as Within the Woods. And this gave the Coen brothers the idea to do a, instead of a little short film proof of concept, a full-on trailer for what would become their first, their debut feature, Blood Simple. So, kind of fun little connection there. Now, I actually came to the Evil Dead backwards, and I think this is probably something that happened to a lot of people. I started with Army of Darkness, and for years, actually had no idea that there were other films, that this was the third film in a series. I just thought it was this kooky, awesome, amazing movie. And all of my friends watched it, my dad loved it, so we rented it all the time, it would show up on TV all the time, it was great. So when I started getting into horror and learning about other films, I was actually, I was at a venture camp with my friend Aaron Grinley, who I've talked about on the show before and who I work with at Value Village, known, we've known each other forever, and everyone else would go back to their tents and me and Grinley would sit around the campfire and he would just start telling me shit about horror movies because that guy's had encyclopedic knowledge as long as I've known him. Puts what I know to shame. And I was telling him, like, dude, I fucking love Army of Darkness. He's like, did you know that there's other ones? I'm like, what? There's sequels to Army of Darkness? He's like, no, dummy. It's the third movie. Have you heard of Evil Dead? I've heard mention of movies called Evil Dead. And he's like, yeah, those are the first and second ones, the Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2. And he started explaining this to me, and he's like, dude, you have to see the first Evil Dead. A girl gets raped by a tree. And yes, I understand it's a horrible way to pitch it, but it was a different time. And it's, and I just like, what? And of course, in my mind, it was a gigantic redwood just crushed somebody to death. And of course, that's not how it was. But that's how I came to it. So then I went out and found copies of Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2 and was completely blown away by those films. Now, the making of the first Evil Dead is almost more famous than the film itself. At least it's, you could call it almost a little more wild than the film itself. Hustling dentists for money, living in that, in a dirty old house with a bunch of young kids, shooting all around the clock in this freezing cold cabin, making their own equipment. This total, you know, like, let's just put on a show. You know, they had been successfully making these Super 8 films for years, and really, they didn't know what they didn't know. They just went out there and made it. And again, that production is legendary. And you can find lots of information about that, because it's been thoroughly documented. Bruce Campbell's autobiography of Chinska Kill has a huge section on the making of Evil Dead, and rightly so. Bill Warren's book, The Evil Dead Companion, is exhaustive in all the information it puts out there. There's audio commentaries. There's making up featurettes. It's If you want to know more about it, I'm not really going to get into it here because it doesn't really have any bearing on the theme this month. But that info is out there. And I think the average horror fan is pretty up to date on the making of it. But as for the film itself, and so far as, again, the theme of this month goes... It revolves around a, a central tenet, one of the central tenets that allows a lot of horror movies to exist, and that's ignoring the obvious. How well the filmmakers manage to justify that ignorance of the, the ignorance of those characters is what separates a good film from a bad film, 
or it's what separates good characters from stupid characters, the kind of characters that make us mad because it's they're so they're doing something so obviously imperiling that it's like, come on, guys. Like, you know, when people start shouting angrily at the screen when a character reacts only in a way that furthers the film. It doesn't further their character in any way. Now, for the characters in The Evil Dead, the warnings are there, you know. It's pretty obvious that something shitty this way is a coming. But the warnings that they're given are dependent on some kind of a belief in the supernatural. And I think that's key here. The creepy cabin finding the Necronomicon, the Kandarian Dagger, the recordings of Professor Nobi talking about ruins and demons and devils. It's all there, but again, you have to believe in these things to be put off by them. And the characters clearly don't. It's also important for us to separate our reaction as the audience from how the characters are responding to what's happening around them. We know that, you know, shit's going to get sticky. The movie's called The Evil Dead. That's why we're here. We're here to, you know, the film is legendary. When it first came out, the, you know, it didn't hide what it was. It was gloriously celebrating the fact on the, the posters and the advertising art that this was a movie that went, all the way and completely over the top. But the characters have obviously never seen The Evil Dead. They're in it. So they don't really have to follow those same rules. And I don't think it's foolish in any way that they ignored some of these warnings, the the you know, the preliminary warnings that they were given because the characters characters themselves, they're just kids. You know, they're out for a weekend of fooling around and oddly aggressive hangouts with Scotty. He's such a jerk. And I'm sure we've all been in this situation. I know I have on a lot of occasions. Is that when you're out with your friends and you're in the woods, camping, walking, whatever, it's natural to want things to get a little spooky. Whether it's scary stories told around the campfire messing around with a Ouija board, or even if you're at home, you know, so many of us grew up playing the nightmare board games, you know, the VHS board game where you put the tape in and the Crypt Keeper guy yells at you for a while and you make your moves. You know, these are all things that, that we've all done because it's one of the main reasons why we love horror movies is that being scared can be fun when it's controlled. It's why we tell scary stories. It's why we read scary stories. It's why we watch scary movies. We've all do these things because it's fun. It's fun to be spooky or to be spooked out when you know that you're completely safe. Or even sometimes where you, you know, like being out in the woods with your friends. Even if it's just, you know, strolling through a park at night and being silly with your friends. You're not scared of you know, a mugger or somebody coming by and and messing with you or, you know, crackheads or whatever. You're just out to try to find faces in the shadows. You know, one of it, it comes back to Evil Dead because I think we did it with this movie. In second year college at Sheridan, there was a, uh, a ravine, little forested area down behind uh, the residence uh, on campus. And me, my friend Jaws and Kat and Drew, we used to go down into the woods at night 
you know, 10, 11 o'clock. And we'd take a laptop down there with us and we would sit in the forest and just get high as shit and watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Evil Dead, Hellraiser, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, and see how long it took one of us to crack before we would just get ourselves so freaked out. And if anybody came walking by, we would just lose our shit. And it was absolutely delight. So it makes perfect sense to me why the characters in this film would ignore these warnings. Because to them, they're not warnings. They're props in in the play that they're going through you know going out and renting a cabin and camping with your friends in the in the dark and in the woods everyone's done that it's a a rite of passage as soon as you're old enough and you get a car you want to get out and away from your parents with your friends and by and large to find that isolation you have to go elsewhere you have to go into the forest you know whether that's a campsite or you know renting a cabin and the more isolated the better because then you can screw around more now we know things are going to get bad that's why we're here and by the time the characters do react to all the spooky that he's going on i.e. Cheryl gets raped by a tree that's pretty firm confirmation that something is rotten in the state of Denmark. By then, of course, it's too late. The bridge is out and they're trapped. And then Evil Dead, the Evil Dead really kicks into high gear. And I'm sure most of you know at this point that the film just moves from one insane calamity to the next. And the the gore is insane, the makeup is insane. It's so it's one of those rare occasions where it's low budget worked incredibly in its favor because so many problems had to be solved creatively and you get to you can really see the roots of especially with Sam Raimi this so few filmmakers on their very first film are as visually fearless as he was on this just to complete it didn't matter if things made sense just shoot it and it becomes this overwhelming nightmare experience. The scene where they stab the Shelly and, <laughs> and she's screaming that it goes on forever. And then she gnaws her own hand off and then gets back up. It's just mental, you know, and it manages to balance this very hardcore violence that's happening in the film. It's very unpleasant. You're chopping up and murdering your friends. People are getting stabbed in the Achilles tendon. They're gnawing their own hands off. Like, it's bad scene. But it balances it with this great sense of very black humor that runs through the whole thing. And given where Sam Raimi would go as a filmmaker, it's not surprising, especially considering where his roots come from as well. You know, I think, hands down, my favorite line, moment in the entire film, gore, mental craziness aside, is when he's, Scotty has chopped down Cheryl, and he says, we have to bury her, and Bruce Campbell says, we can't bury Shelley, she's a friend of ours. That's the best line in the whole film. It, it really is. And you get away with it, one, because Bruce Campbell is such a compelling performer, even here in, you know, his very first film role. And, you know, 
all of the the accolades and stuff he would later earn in his career, especially coming off Evil Dead 2, are all completely justified. Most people that have gone to horror conventions or involved with horror have some kind of a Bruce Campbell story if you've got to interact with them. I've read his books, love his movies, followed him relentlessly, and I actually got to meet him. It was at Festival of Fear in, I think, 2009, and... The office manager at Rue Morgue, uh, my friend Ron, we were talking to, we were going to meet with him to talk about a uh, some kind of a project offering, he was wanting to start up a conve- his own convention or a little show, and we had been working to organize the Festival of Fear at that point, obviously not doing it all ourselves, we were just part of a, a bigger machine. So he's like, well, I'll talk to you guys, see what you have to say, and so he's signing, doing his stuff all day. And if you've ever seen Bruce Campbell at a show, he's everything that fans want him to be. He knows how to be Bruce Campbell. He's got the act down pat. So he finishes signing, comes around the into the green room with his handler, and he's you know got the coat on like he had in the uh, the Old Spice commercials, and slicker than grease goo shit. He was so cool and so in control, knew at the same time that we were completely blown away that this is Bruce Campbell and we're trying to be cool and confident and talk to him. And he never pushed that on us, never stepped on us with it or tried to ball us over. He was completely engaged in talking to us and shaking his hand is definitely one of my high points. I was also lucky enough at, to meet Tom Sullivan, who did all the great uh, makeup and design effects and stuff on the first film. He does a little a booth, a little Evil Dead museum every year for years at Cinema Wasteland in Ohio. And when I went there the first time in 2005, we wandered through the museum, and he was just such a lovely dude. He was giving out chocolates. And he signed my Book of the Dead DVD, the one that looks like the Necronomicon, and I'm sure that everyone else that owns one is having the same problem that I've had over the years, where it's been disintegrating slowly. Because I think the, I don't know if it's the latex or whatever they use for this, a lot of that material's biodegradable. So mine has uh, slowly been going to pieces over the years. So I try not to touch it too much because it just it just rots away. But... I think that's it's one of the reasons why a film like Evil Dead works is there's a lot of awesome, obviously legendary stuff in it. And I think, you know, Evil Dead 2 was obviously the, the big explosive moment because that just kicked everything into high gear. But, you know, I think what saved, not saved, because Evil Dead didn't need any saving, beyond the, you know, the incredible camera work and the violence and stuff, it's despite the you could say very and rightly so amateurish performances from a group of amateurs. You know, these are, these are people that hadn't been in films before is that the characters don't make stupid decisions. And that's very important, especially when they're in a situation like this, where the danger is obvious and we as the audience know it's obvious, but we have to make sure. And what that, that the characters are responding in a sensible manner to this situation. And that's what keeps us engaged. That's what can make us, help us, I should say, to look past some dodgy effects, some amateur performances, low production values, and help us 
be completely caught up in the overwhelmingly awesome experience that is the original Evil Dead. So if for some reason, you, the to my listeners out there, if you have not seen the first Evil Dead, please watch the first Evil Dead. Then watch Evil Dead 2, and then watch Army of Darkness. Despite, you might be confused by the first 20 or so minutes of Evil Dead 2. When they just to get this out of the way so that you're not confused, because I keep I've heard a lot of people talk about oh, Evil Dead 2 is a remake. No, it's not. They couldn't get the rights to show footage from the first Evil Dead at the start of Evil Dead 2. So they decided that they were just gonna reshoot kind of a quick little recap of what went down in the first one. Evil Dead 2 actually starts. There's a shot in it where the the force comes barreling through the cabin and knock, picks Bruce up and knocks him through the trees and he's spinning through the air and getting hit with trees. That is actually where Evil Dead 2 starts. You can kitty-corner that right up to the very end of the first Evil Dead, which ends on that shot of the force coming through the cabin and runs up to Bruce and he's screaming. So that's where Evil Dead 2 starts. So don't be confused. But onward and upward. So... That is how one group of characters can react. They are in a situation where the the warnings are obvious, but they are dependent on how much you believe in spooky things that you find and how willing you are to, if you were in a situation like that, you've rented the cabin and you found some weird stuff, do you immediately pack up the car and run away? I think it's justified that they didn't in the first Evil Dead. So that brings us to Evil Dead. So not The Evil Dead, Evil Dead, from 2013, directed by Fide Alvarez. Five friends head to a remote cabin where the discovery of a Book of the Dead leads them to unwittingly summon up demons living in the nearby woods. So, remaking The Evil Dead is a tall order. In the, it, it takes balls to do this. And we've had so many remakes of classic horror films since the turn of the millennium, and most of them really were just piss poor. The problem was there was a few right at the start, like 2001, 2003, that turned out pretty decent. Uh, Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead remake did well, even though I think that movie's aging really badly. Uh, the Hills Have Eyes remake, and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake. All, well, at least, I, I don't much care for the Dawn remake. They abandoned too much of the, of the central tenets of the film. Whereas the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Hills Have Eyes remake, they abandoned some important elements of the originals, but still managed to make very good, very visceral, powerful films in their own right. That led to a slew of other remakes that hit within the next probably 10 years. And 99% of them were complete crap. So when this movie was announced, instead of the off-teased Evil Dead 4, fans were skeptical. We were skeptical as an audience, and rightly so. So many other remakes were just left and right. They were falling face first into a bedpan full of nails. It was just a horror show. Every time a new one was announced, it was, every time I heard about it, it was like, nope, why? There's absolutely no way that they're going to get it right. Statistically, it didn't work. And they were going to do it without Bruce Campbell. So how could it be any good? 
And I know myself, and I'm sure a lot of other horror fans were caught off guard by just how good the film was. Now, it helped that the film was made and supervised and directly produced and handled by Sam Raimi, Rob Tappert, and Bruce Campbell. It wasn't a, we'll bring in a couple other people and we'll semi-pay attention to this. They were really hands-on with this, and it shows. I think the important thing to get out of the way here first is this technically isn't a remake, and the giveaway is in the title. The 2013 film is called simply Evil Dead. And I know for a lot of people it might be semantics because we have Evil Dead 2. We have, you know, but the first film is called The Evil Dead. It's not Evil Dead. And the film, and it's been commented on by the production team that this is not a remake. It is, you could call it a bit of a side sequel. It happens in the same universe as the other Evil Dead films. And while the situation is the same, uh, you could say, is similar, you know, friends at a cabin summon up evil spirits, the reason behind them being there and the characters themselves are very different, and that's smart. Because so many of these remakes just went in and pretty much just rehashed the exact same scenarios, slightly tweaked the characters. Usually they just made them more abrasive or they tried to give too much backstory uh, to killers or villains and just ended up robbing them of their power. All of those arguments I'm looking at you, Rob Zombie's Halloween. Well, the first film, it focuses on friends looking for a weekend getaway. Here, They've gathered these, this group of friends have gathered to help their friend Mia get clean. And that's a major separation already. But another big separation from the original film here is that this is a fractured group that is already under a huge amount of stress. And they are committed to staying at this cabin no matter what. This is a a life and death situation that they're in. So when they start to get hints that things are wrong, that something is really wrong here. Now, we've already had a little prologue where we've seen somebody, you know, we know what's happened in the basement. We already know what's going on. But finding the bloody trap door and all the dead animals hanging in the basement under normal circumstances, and these are a sensible bunch of people, that would be a good reason for them to pack up and go. But they, as I said, they're already under stress. They already feel like they're in a life and death situation. Their friend Mia, who they're there to help, she's already overdosed and died once. How far are they willing to go to save a friend's life? How many things are there? Are they really willing to ignore to put her life and her safety as the most as the most tantamount issue? It is the it is something more important than bloody trap doors and a basement full of dead animals. Sticking around, you know, it does make sense given their situation. You know, you can write off a lot when you're under that kind of stress. But opening up the package that's wrapped in barbed wire and reading from a book that is 
obviously wrapped in or bound in human skin, that's a whole different can of worms. And I understand that not fucking with the book is predicated on a belief in the supernatural, but come on. there's That's the only time where I would say this is just a little too much. You know, playing the tape that they find, the reel-to-reel tape in the first movie, is understandable. You know, it's fun to be scared sometimes, as I talked about. So they'd want to play the tape. They want to see what's on it. They're not reading anything. They don't know what the tape is going to do. They don't know that Professor Nobi is going to read, you know, Kanda, and start summoning the evil dead themselves. But reading from such an obvious red flag of a book is, you're asking for trouble. You're, so I think this is a situation where they, they've been given enough warnings, and despite the life and death situation that they're in with their friend Mia, this is a step over the line. This is a, you have ignored sound advice and got yourself into trouble. You know, unlike in the first film where they're just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now, there are some, as different as the film is, and there's some ideas here at play that are actually really neat. The idea that their friend is there, she's coming down, I think it's heroin, So she's going cold turkey, and her friends think she's having the DTs when she starts to see stuff. And that's a very, very neat concept. And it's a shame that they didn't play it out further, that they didn't do more with it, because that's just a great idea for a horror movie. You know, we've had scenarios like that. They usually revolve around, you know, whether it's someone in an asylum or somebody with mental illness or hysteria, nobody believes what they're saying. You know, kind of a, uh, it's a boy who cried wolf scenario that they've applied here. And it, I think it would have been cooler if they had have done more with it. But what we did get was still cool. And... This film, so I, I just just to get off track, this film has some truly brutal moments. It is one of the most violent, if not the most violent film I've ever seen in a mainstream theater uh, with an R rating. And once it kicks off with the tree rape scene, uh, paralleling in the original, even though here it is is much more horrible and much more violent. Once that happens, it really, really doesn't let up. You know, we go from that to the scalding hot, the boiling shower, which is nasty. And as somebody that has had massive, brutal, uh, when I was, I have a sunburn on my back, the first day of grade eight, to have a tangent. First day out of grade eight, we all went down to, uh, used to be called the Dully, but somebody spray painted over the name on the bridge. It's the rotating train bridge in Little Lake. And kids spend all summer down there swimming. So me and my buddies, we all went and I spent eight hours on a black bridge, metal bridge over the water in the blistering sun with no sunscreen on. So needless to say, I got a very, very intense sunburn from about the middle of my back all the way up to my shoulders and down and strips down to my elbows was one gigantic solid sheet of blisters. So this scene, it just makes my back hurt just watching that scene. And 
that's another major shift from this film to the first film is that, well, the first film went pretty far in terms of its presentations of violence and gore and mayhem and craziness. They managed to mix into that a really healthy dose of absurdity, which comes directly from Sam Raimi, kind of that Three Stooges-esque violence. And they would really play that up in Evil Dead 2 and especially in Army of Darkness. Here, though, it is just, it is all relentless viciousness. It is non-stop viciousness. You have Olivia, Jessica Lucas's character, cutting off her own face and then stabbing Lou Taylor Pucci in the face with a needle. He really gets it the worst, and I think rightly so, because he's the mook that read from the Book of the Dead. You know, he gets... Needles to the face, stabbed with broken glass, shot with a nail gun, beaten with a crowbar, which also smashes his hand apart. You know, it, and then he gets stabbed in the side with a exacto blade. Like it's just brutal. Uh, Elizabeth Blackmore's character cutting off her own arm with the electric car kitchen knife, and showing it. Like, all of this is in very grisly detail. Like, they're not cutting away for any of this. You know, before shooting herself in the face with the nail gun. Like, the film really goes completely above and beyond in terms of its, you know, relentless descent into grueling terror. And this all builds to to a showdown that is just wonderful. Well, the showdown in the first one, when it's just Ash left alive... It's more of a case of the Deadites are fucking with him. That's the humor of that movie. And they're just out to kind of drive him insane. There's a, a, a horrible pleasure they take in toying with his mind. Now, could it have been more gory and crazy and over the top given their budget? Sure. And we see more of that in Evil Dead 2. But here, because they have such, they have much more substantial budget and crew and stuff involved, it can get crazier. So this builds to a final showdown where it literally rains blood, and that freaking air raid siren that they have mixed into the soundtrack is so crazy. And Mia's battle with this demon that rises up out of the ground is fantastic. And again, fucking relentless. You know, she loses her hand just like Ash, which she has to rip off. You know, it's not like he took the chainsaw to it. In Evil Dead 2, she rips it off out from under the car and then jams her hand into the handle of the chainsaw and literally fucks the demon in the face with the chainsaw before sawing him in half. It's just great. It is just great film. In terms of remakes, I think it's up there, even though it's not technically a remake, yes, but it is, whatever. I think it's up there. It's not as good as films like The Thing or The Fly, but I think it's in that company. In terms of, though, the central theme of what we're talking about this month, this is a case, though, of characters being given ample warning that something's going on, and choosing to ignore that. And that's what gets them into this situation. I think that's why it might be, especially the guy that read from the book, got it way worse than everybody else. Though the one person they are there to save is the one that ends up surviving. And in the end, they do save Mia, uh, played wonderfully by Jane Levy. She is just a powerhouse in this film. And it's just great. If... You've been avoiding the film because you're anti-remake. I get it. 
I completely understand. There's a lot of bad remakes out there to ignore. This is definitely one worth checking out. I know it's popped up periodically. I've, I saw it on Netflix once. I think it showed up there for a while. I don't know where it's streaming, but it's out on DVD. It's worth getting a copy because there's some great behind-the-scenes features about the making of the film. It's a great film. It is a very welcome addition to the Evil Dead mythology. And really better than pretty much anything they did in three seasons of Ash vs. Evil Dead. Yes, I'm going to say it. It's not a good show. I watch, I've watched it all the way through twice. Uh, the first season is just abysmal. It, they felt like they were just floundering around, had no idea what the story was. It does get better. I think the second season was the best, and some into season three. But they just kept falling back on the movies. You know, we always keep, seem to keep winding back up at the cabin. You know, it's it's worth checking out. But they made Ash such an unlikable character. And I just, I don't understand why they went the direction that they did. But they did. If you're looking for some really good Evil Dead, check out, obviously, the first three films. But check out the Evil Dead remake. I think, uh, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. And that brings us to Deep Space Nine, Season 2, Episode 4, Invasive Procedures, which aired October 17th, 1993. A jealous Trill, who had waited his entire life to receive a symbiote, but never did, decides to steal Dax's, or also steal Dax, because Dax is the name of the symbiote. This is, this is a low-key episode, coming off the, the big three-parter that kicked off Season 2. And Trek has done this setup before. Some kind of space stuff, an anomaly, an ion storm, a this or that or whatever, in insert MacGuffinal term here, causes the ship or a station or what have you to run on a skeleton crew and calamity of some sort ensues. This episode feels like, and, it, and as I came to discover, has been confirmed by the writers to be, a way to give a lot of information very quickly uh, regarding Trills and Trill Society and the symbiotes themselves. Because all through season one, we've been talking about um, Jadzia's symbiote, Dax is the name of the symbiote, but it's hard. Everyone just calls her Dax. And the the lifetime, the eight lifetimes of memories that are involved in it, and how she came to get the symbiote, and what that means. But we've never really interacted before with another trill, and and to see how the other people in their culture respond to not being chosen, and how just how hard it is to be chosen to carry a symbiote, and what that means in the level of responsibility, not only just to yourself, but to keep Dax, the symbiote itself, safe and to go out into, you know, the quadrant and do good with it, with this experience and this gift you've been given. While the info is cool and getting all of that information about Trill Society is cool, honestly, it doesn't really amount to much. And the only reason for that is you, we know from right off the hop that Jadzia is going to get her symbiote back in the end. It's just a matter of seeing how everybody's going to pull it off, what they're going to have to do to overwhelm the these guys that have, you know, basically held the station hostage and how that's all going to play out. So it's it's a fine episode, 
but it's just fine. It's not it's not a, a standout episode in any way. A fun cameo, or not really cameo, or full-on role, uh, Tim Russ plays one of, the, I guess, the lead Klingon here. And two years before he would appear as Tuvok, the Vulcan, as a series regular on Voyager. So that's cool. That's a fun, fun little thing there. On to books. I read All My Puny Sorrows by Miriam Toes from 2014. Toes, Taos, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that. I have read, I think I've talked about several other of her books on this show. Um, Some are My Amazing Luck, Complicated Kindness, and Irma Voth. Being back to work has given me access again to books. Because <laughs> I've been plowing through during the shutdown all of these books that I've just had kind of sitting there on my shelf. My to-be-read pile has dramatically shrunk over the uh, the course of the lockdown. But since being back, that was one of the first things. I was like, ooh, there's going to be a new batch of books coming out and I can find some. So I've picked up a few and there's some, you know, authors I keep an eye out for, but I was scrolling through the, uh, or scanning through the shelf the other day and boom, anytime I see a Miriam Tao's book or Toe's book, I've got to get it. So this book is, it's wonderful, obviously. It feels to me kind of like a combination of Summer of My Amazing Luck and a Complicated Kindness. It revolves around two sisters, one whose life is a bit of a wreck. She's twice divorced. She's got two kids kind of just floundering around in life, not really with a firm hold on her career. She's a somewhat successful kids author, but she wants to break out into other things. Life's not the best. Her sister, on the other hand, is a world-renowned concert pianist, married to someone who adores her, rich, famous, has everything you could ever want, and the only thing in the world she wants is to kill herself. And this is all about their interaction of her sister trying to keep the other sister alive, and learning about their family history and a history of suicide in the family. And it mirrors the author's own experience in life, losing her father to suicide and a sister to suicide and family members to it, which seems to be horribly common in the Mennonite community. And like so many of her other books, these characters are Mennonites as well. I don't want to spoil too much because you you need to have all these revelations and stuff come out for yourself. It's It's heartbreaking and it's tragic what happens. But it's, I didn't find it as oppressive in certain ways as something like A Complicated Kindness. It has that similar vibe to the book where it's more of a dictated story. The character is dictating what's happening from broad issues to small little things in their daily life. So I won't spoil too much, but it was wonderful just like everything else I've read by this author, and I cannot wait to read the rest of her books. So, All My Puny Sorrows by Miriam Toes from 2014. Check it out. Recommendations. It would be easy for me to recommend Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness, but that's obvious. Once the worlds we get back out into the world again, and movies come back, and stage and theater and stuff comes back, if 
The Evil Dead musical comes to your town and you haven't seen it. Oh my God, go. It is an absolute hoot. In 2000, like it was a Broadway, off-Broadway breakout hit. In 2005, the Broadway cast, or at least one of the guys, the guy that played Ash, they did a run at the Diesel Playhouse in Toronto. And I was lucky enough to go, me and my buddy Mike, and I think his brother, or was it our friend Colin? I can't remember. It was me and Mike. And it's ama- amazing. I got the soundtrack from Rumorg when I was working there, and we played it non-stop when we were working on his short film Bloodshed. It's hilarious. Stay tuned at the end of the episode. I'm going to drop in one of the songs, my favorite song from the soundtrack, All the Men in My Life Keep Getting Killed by Kandarian Demons. It's absolutely brilliant. The other recommendation, again, is not a movie, is a video game. Now, there's been a few different video games based on the Evil Dead movies, and most of them with not great results. I think the standout game uh, came up for the Xbox, so I'm assuming it was on PS2 as well, was Evil Dead Regeneration. And it's a hypothetical reimagining of what would have happened if Bruce had have come back from the cabin at the end of Evil Dead 2. And he ends up in a nut house, because of course, how do you explain that to people? And there's an, an evil doctor at the insane asylum who gets a hold of the Necronomicon and really large-scale nuttiness ensues. Uh, Bruce Campbell came back to do the voice of Ash, and he's awesome. Ted Raimi voices his little sidekick that you can beat up and kick around. The game is great. The, the, the shooting, the chaos, the monsters, it's a great game. Check it out. Book recommendations? The Evil Dead Companion by Bill Warren. It is exhaustive. It's everything you ever wanted to know about the making of Evil Dead. You really can't do better than that. Whew. Coming next week for episode 24, continuing the They Were Warned theme, moving away from, I guess you could call the theme this week of, are those warnings obvious? Or, I guess, situationally dependent warnings, you could say, for this week. Next week is a classic horror warning. One of the most celebrated characters in any horror film It's the warnings of the Harbinger. Yes, a character who the main group of core characters encounter this person. They are given a dire warning to stay away from someone, something, somewhere, and completely ignore it. So, I'm going to be discussing Children of the Corn and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Two excellent uses of the Harbinger trope and two of my earliest loves in horror. Children of the Corn was actually my first big obsession after Hellraiser, so lots of fun stuff to talk about. Until then, you can find me on Facebook at Steal My Name Cast. You can find me on SoundCloud at the Steal My Name Podcast. Please like, subscribe, share, tell a friend, you know, call a friend. Use all of your Who Wants to Be a Millionaire lifelines. It would really mean a lot to me. Again, I know this episode is coming a couple of days late. I'm still trying to get... My schedule is all over the place with being back to work. So I'm still trying to get a hold of my new rhythms. But I hope this one was worth the wait. I had a lot of fun talking about these films this way. Because it would have been... It would have been easy for me to just do an in-depth info dump about The Evil Dead. And just tell you all the facts and the behind-the-scenes stuff. But... 
I thought it would be kind of fun to look at it from a slightly different angle. You know, it's the it's the frame of parter in me that can't get past that. So once again, thank you very much. Remember to wash your hands, be excellent to each other, and until next time, steal someone else's name because this one is already taken. All the men in my life keep getting killed by Kandarian demons. All the men in your life keep getting killed by Kandarian demons. First there was Ed. A really nice guy Didn't talk too much But I didn't mind I was all set To marry him But before we could consummate Ed was killed by A Kandarian demon Kandarian demon Kandarian demon Kandarian demon Then it was daddy Daddy Who I could count on He loved to he also enjoyed oh, playing board games But he can't sink my battleship now Cause dad was killed by a Kandarian demon Kandarian demon, Kandarian demon, Kandarian demon They say love is cruel and I believe them My heart's always broken Cause the men in my life keep getting killed by Kandarian demons <laughs> Why? I don't know Annie baby, I know it seems bad now It always does But I think you're exaggerating a touch, sugar bee I mean, sure, your father and fiancé were killed by Kandarian demons But that's only two men, isn't it? I mean, there's no way that all the men in your life could have been killed by Kandarian demons! Oh, no! It was high school! High school! Senior prom! Oh, yeah! Going with my steady Howie prom! Howie prom! perfect night! Howie prom! Like I always dreamed! A little girl's dream! But when Stairway to Heaven began, how was killed by Damn. a Kandarian demon! Kandarian demon, Kandarian demon All my college boyfriends and my one-night stands My male co-workers and platonic gay friends Hey! Every date I go on ends in demon bloodshed And now that i met you two guys, I know you'll soon be dead What the f- They say love is cruel and I believe them Yeah.